Welcome to the CFA Society India podcast where society members engage in conversations with industry experts to bring you unique insights. This bi-monthly podcast is available on your favorite podcast channel. And now let's dive into today's episode. Hello everyone. Welcome to the CFA Society India podcast. My name is Jolly Balwa CFA and I'm the host for today's episode. I also host my podcast called Investing and Purpose. This is our first episode in the series of Economy and Asset classes and we are going to look at the US today. In particular, the interplay of inflation, central bank policy and the likely implications for financial markets. And to discuss these, we have Dr. Arvind Rajan today joining us from the US. Arvind Rajan PhD is a managing partner of Basis Point Global Solutions which he co-founded in 2020. It provides analytical solutions for algorithmic trading and investment management. Dr. Rajan worked on the Wall Street for three decades in leadership roles, both on the sell side as as well as buy side. He was the international CIO at PGIM Fixed Income. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Rajan, and thank you for joining in in the early morning hours. It is a pleasure to have you. Jolly, uh, let me begin by saying that it's a pleasure to be with the CFA Society again. Uh, thank you so much for having me, um, and uh, I'm really looking forward to the podcast. I look forward to it as well. So, um, Dr. Rajan, we have started this year, 2023, with expectations of a recession in the U.S., but the economy has continued to remain resilient, and now the forecasts of a recession have been pushed to the second half of the year, and they may right. even likely be getting revised as we speak. and the usual patterns seem to be distorted as a consequence of the pandemic as well as the fiscal spending so it's been quite an uncertain macro environment for quite some time right yes absolutely and um i think one of the biggest and um wildest cards here is inflation so um let's talk a little bit about inflation as we are experiencing it right now now inflation is very hard to forecast even in the best of times and we know that the fed for example as well as the markets completely missed the signals for inflation when it went up as well as now we are misreading how inflation is moving as it comes down but i have to say that at the moment the news on inflation continues to be encouraging because year over year cpi has now fallen from a peak of about 9% in june of last year to 5% in april 4% in may and recent data uh, are showing like stabilization in energy prices airlines hotel rates uh, food and used car prices are falling so when we combine um, this info with uh, strong inflation in may and june of 22 um because of the base effect this says that year over year inflation should be continuing to fall to 3 to 3.5% in june not only that but you know when rental inflation is going down or at least peaking it's possible that year over year will remain below 4% through the end of the year now after that we probably expected to go down to between 2 and 3% over the course of next year 
Now, all of these are pretty uncertain estimates. So I don't want to fall into the trap of uh, sounding very certain about these numbers, because you know that uh, we have all been wrong uh, about a lot of the inflation forecasts. Absolutely. And I think we must also like start with the caveat that we are not doing any kind of crystal ball gazing here, right? So, right. Okay. So now if we look at a slightly longer term perspective, we are beginning to witness a sort of a paradigm shift. And uh, there's a lot of buzz around deglobalization and French shoring. And uh, the sustainability related aspects are also playing in the background. So uh, where do you think is inflation headed in the US and globally from a longer term perspective? Jolly, inflation is falling at the moment. And, you know, if anything, the longer term outlook on where inflation can end up is even more difficult to decipher than, you know, to say what is going to be over the next six months or a year. And the reason for this difficulty is that there are two sets of countervailing factors that are pushing the potential for inflation long term in opposite directions. So first of all, uh, let's look at the factors that could be driving inflation higher. So the immediate factors, of course, are that the remnants of supply chain disruptions from COVID are still there. Uh, the US consumer has changed their behavior. They used to be uh, intent on reducing debt after the great financial crisis, but now uh, they are back to consuming. Now, uh, that is, of course, inflationary. And then fiscal policy, as we know, has turned much looser compared to the last decade. So those are immediate factors. And then longer term, there's now becoming, it's becoming clear that there's a repositioning of manufacturing uh, to regions with higher labor costs uh, in order to reduce supply chain risks. But even though this is for a good reason, it means that we will not be able to import goods deflation in the US in the way that we did uh, for more than three decades when we were importing primarily from China. Also, deglobalization is uh, inflationary for another reason, which is that it raises costs and wages domestically. And finally, it reduces the savings glut in Asia that was being used to buy uh, treasuries. Finally, we have a shrinking labor force in many countries because of aging demographics, and that's a long-term inflationary item. So those are stacked on one side, but on the other side, you also have some pretty powerful factors that mitigate inflation. So for example, we have commodity inflation, starting with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that's now reversed and it's fallen by 10% since the start of the year and it's the lowest since, it, since 21. So um, that's, that's an immediate factor. Another immediate factor is the slowing economy and that slow economy is led by manufacturing but it's now extending into services. We do have supply side disruptions from COVID fading and that helps. Um, credit that was slow after GFC uh, is now slow because we've had a mini banking crisis earlier this year and we have some wounded state and regional banks. Um, another major long-term factor is inequality. There's no sign of that subsiding and it constrains spending and encourages saving. 
virtualization where people are moving from the real world to online world creates a single global market with virtually unlimited supply, no transportation frictions. So that's an inherently disinflationary world. And finally, technology, you know, large language models like chat GPT being kind of the latest um, manifestation of that will continue to be disinflationary and create excess labor. So how do you balance these two really, really different sets of factors? To me, the disinflationary forces are the more powerful of the two, but we can't be absolutely sure. And this is why specific forecasts about inflation kind of irritate me. So for example, uh, Larry Summers in a recent speech in London said, we need two years of 7.5% unemployment or five years of 6% unemployment or one year of 10% unemployment in order to contain inflation. So what I object to in that kind of statement is not the link between the two, which I think is perfectly legit, but rather the sort of the spurious specificity of this type of prediction, given that we have all these unquantifiable factors involved. So to sum up, although I think that overall inflation is likely to subside globally, it probably won't go down to the levels of the past decade. And while nobody knows how much or when, and it's kind of misleading to say that we do know, if you press me for an answer, I would say it's probably going to go to between 2 and 3 percent. Interesting. So it looks like there are a lot of factors which have yet to unfold over a lot of years going forward. And uh, But nevertheless, it just also sounds like quite a departure from the zero rates policy world that we are used to. Okay, now let's turn our attention to another important aspect, which is liquidity. There's going to be a deluge of treasury issuance uh, in this particular year, and uh, that is going to be close to the tune of a trillion dollars. And apart from that, the Federal Reserve is also continuing with its quantitative tightening. Although, of course, it's a huge balance sheet to unwind. So how does the liquidity picture look to you going forward? Well, um, Jolly, I think this uh, deluge of uh, tables that is coming could turn out to be both literally and figuratively a paper tiger. Um, but having said that, it is based on a plausible fear. So let's, let's examine this issue. Now, first of all, we have um, a new challenge after the debt ceiling debate is behind us, uh, which is that, you know, customers have higher yielding alternatives than bank deposits. So in the background, we are already seeing deposits moving from banks to money markets. So in that context, where banks have lost about 850 billion in deposits this year, money market fund assets have risen by almost 700 billion, and we have almost five and a half trillion in those money market assets at this point. Uh, the Treasury Department now wants to replenish its coffers and uh, by to do that, they're issuing something like $1.2 trillion in T-bills. And the interesting part is that a big part of that issuance, probably about half, is not going to go back into the market, but rather it's going to go to replenish the coffers, the TGA. So this is now happening, as you pointed out, at the same time that the Fed is continuing the quantitative tightening. So this is why the market is concerned about it. 
And I think that the fear that the market has of disruption created by the steeple issuance is probably exaggerated. And the reason I think that is because the overnight reverse repo program uh, has more than $2 trillion, even after the drawdown in the Fed balance sheet. So what I'm relying upon here is that the Fed has ample room to adjust its quantitative tightening program. They don't want to say they want to do that, but it is part of their mandate to ensure financial stability. So it is likely that where the quantitative tightening was previously offset by the Treasury drawing down its checking account, now that it is going to rebuild that checking account, it's going to be a tightening, um, a tightening force in the market along with the Fed um, QT. So the Fed may have to adjust the QT in order to deal with it, but because it's part of the mandate, I do believe it's gonna do that. So that's the near term, but longer term is actually truly troubling to me because fiscal profligacy, as I'd like to call it, is probably here to stay. And that's been kind of uh, re-emphasized by the debt deal because the debt deal was a very weak deal in terms of uh, fiscal conservatism. And this fiscal conservatism that used to be a mainstay, there used to be people in both parties in the US uh, that supported it. Uh, that has really gone down uh, dramatically in both places. So neither party is now fiscally conservative. Um, and this has been happening for almost 40 years. It's gradual, but the cumulative effect is pretty bad. And this latest $2 trillion plus stimulus that uh, we had with the pandemic, the latest debt ceiling deal, these are just reinforcing this profligacy. And I really don't think that even though we had this big episode of inflation, that's going to reverse this populist tendency to spend. And not only in the US, but around the world, we are seeing the same thing. So the market's uh, implications for this are not known, uh, but they can't be pleasant. So um, having addressed short term and long term, let's come back uh, to the ground here. It's not an immediate problem. Uh, and not even probably a problem for the current generation of investors. So I'm not that worried about the impending issuance in the second half. But it's interesting that the Fed didn't talk about this very much uh, and did not link it to the fact that they are going to potentially hike rates two times in the second half. So we'll have to see how they adjust their rhetoric as time goes forward. Interesting. I, I do see your point about the reverse repo program as well. I think uh, uh, there is this latest data which I was seeing uh, has is is indicating that the volumes have gone down below two trillion for the first time in a year. So uh, it's too early, of course, but uh, that volume is going down. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Now let's uh, turn our attention uh, towards economic conditions and growth. If we look at the corporate side, I mean. Uh, the CapEx and the non-residential fixed investment in particular, uh, they have seen a sign of slowdown like in the last two quarters. And if you look at consumers, on the other hand, like who have been the major driving forces with their spending, and this is, of course, thanks to the stimulus checks. And uh, there are still estimates that there are around $500 billion of excess savings with them. 
so they may find their way into consumer spending in the third or the fourth quarter even but again mm -hmm. uh, the confidence is dwindling and credit card delinquencies are also kind of rising in the age groups of 20s and 30s now let me start with the labor market where i think really that data is truly crucial so may non-farm payrolls, uh, for example, significantly beat consensus uh, expectations. But at the same time, unemployment rate rose to 3.7% and wage growth slowed. So the simultaneous decrease, you know, in uh, uh, increase in the unemployment rate uh, and in the total jobs is a discrepancy between the establishment and the household survey components. And that is kind of confusing. It means that essentially the Federal Reserve is caught a little bit in the middle between these, and it really wanted to take more time to assess market conditions. And that's why they paused in June. Um, now, they paused in June, uh, and, and then they became a little uncertain because the the economy didn't slow as much as they had hoped. Inflation didn't slow as much as they had hoped. And so they introduced the hawkishness, um, even as they felt like they couldn't really, you know, change the signals that they had given that they're going to pause. Um, on the debt ceiling, that legislation being a, re a reality, markets have, um, you know, heaved a collective sigh of relief. Um, on growth, Recent data has been pretty comforting. We've seen somewhat stronger than expected auto sales, housing sales, and employment numbers. So uh, having said all this, you know, there are some clear signs of diminishing momentum in the labor market. And in addition to this, we have continued slow labor force. We have an increasingly cautious business sector. We know that uh, bank lending is already tight and it's probably going to stay tight. All this has the potential to slow growth some more. So um, that's the mixed picture that we are looking at. And uh, we cannot really know the exact timing or severity um, of the slowdown. So that's why the Fed tried to walk the line. And that's why the market is uh, pretty data dependent right now. Absolutely. And uh, while we can't really predict the timing, but uh, how about uh, say if if the much anticipated recession happens, how deep or how bad is it likely to be? Is there any um, view on that? <laughs> Jolly, you you just seem to specialize in asking all the hard questions. <laughs> so a U.S. recession, uh, while it's not inevitable, is very likely. And honestly, it has become a bit more likely now uh, after the Fed's move, or rather non-move. Um, why? Because they have now packed into their backpack two more rate hikes. Um, if those rate hikes were to materialize, it would increase the, the probability of a US recession. Um, and now it may even be the case that we are already in a recession because we often don't find out until after the fact when we are. But listen, let me give you some optimism, okay? So I do think that even if we have a recession, it's probably going to be mild this time. And the reasons are really structural, right? So number one, um, it appears to me that the Fed has successfully staved off a banking crisis 
uh, as long as uh, they don't have to hike a lot more, because I think they did precipitate what happened uh, with Silicon Valley Bank and others earlier this year. Um, but they responded and they stabilized the larger banks for now. The smaller and regional banks are still potentially in a little bit of trouble, but I don't think that that will turn into a systematic crisis. That's point number one. Now, point number two, the private sector in the US is doing well, and that's not usually the case just before you enter a recession. And last but not least, I'm kind of not aware of other major macro event risks. Now, these are famous last words sometimes when you say stuff like that, but if any of these factors change, that things would be different. But at this point, we are looking at an optimistic outlook in terms of how mild a recession might be. So, um, but if I'm wrong about this and some unseen shoe drops, then we'll just have to do another podcast. Absolutely. Okay, so given this backdrop, how do you interpret the recent uh, FOMC meeting and the Fed's commentary on that? Yeah, um, so the most recent meeting was incredibly interesting because the Fed actually did surprise the markets. And based on the market reaction over the last couple of days, they pulled it off. Uh, their whole goal is to get their views into the market without causing a disruption, right? And uh, they managed to do it. So now uh, let's look at the backdrop. So we had a benign CPI inflation report on June 13th, and we had enough signs of slowing to get the Fed to go on hold. Moreover, they had kind of already signaled that they're going to go on hold. The markets were pricing in a 90 plus percent probability of it. So I think they felt constrained um, and they had kind of engineered that hold uh, kind of view by um, giving speeches prior to the, um, you know, the silent period. Uh, so they felt constrained not to, to hike, but they wanted to convey that they were not quite happy, you know, with the way that the data were moving, things were not slowing fast enough. So they used this 50% increase in the dot plot to send the hawkish message. So that's the interpretation of the hawkish pause. Um, the Fed also has revised up their GDP forecast as well as the PC inflation. They shifted the language a bit. Um, they, uh, Jerome Powell gave some somewhat hawkish comments in his press conference. All of this sought to drive that message home. Um, now the market thinks that this is more jawboning than signaling because you can see in the movement of the yield curve at the front end that the market doesn't really believe that there's going to be a lot more hikes than there were before the meeting. Um, but having said that, obviously the market doesn't like the two hikes that are implied by the dot plot. It's just not pricing them in. And I think the market has good reason to be skeptical until the Fed either delivers or firms up the guidance on specific heights, uh, uh, hikes. So um, for the, the chairman was quite um, elusive when he was asked about July, right? He said, it's a live meeting, you know, anything can happen. So now if you take 50 basis points and you kind of spread it over six months, you'll get eight basis points a month. But that straight line of, uh, you know, eight beeps a month is very misleading. You know, what Powell didn't say is that because they want to stop before they hike too much, 
the barrier for hiking is probably much higher in terms of the data they would have to see than previously when they were hiking every month. So that uh, sort of barrier is what the markets are kind of banking on. Now, the problem with barriers is that as long as they hold, it's good. But if they break through, usually a flood of water comes through. So now let's look at the goals of the Fed. They are trying to contain low labor cost inflation. As soon as the Fed feels it has done enough to contain aggregate demand and the ensuing labor cost push, it will moderate the posture. It will become more accommodating. It will pause permanently. And the market feels that that's, there's enough of that in the data to keep the Fed from hiking and carrying through on the two hikes. And I also think this is kind of my base strategy, you know, because growth is slowing, uh, labor markets will cool, and I do expect the Fed to stop and moderate. Now, the other thing in the Fed's mind, and he absolutely did not talk about it, Jerome, in his uh, conference, is that they want to contain bank failures, especially among smaller and regional banks. These banks have become undercapitalized by buying long duration assets uh, before rates rose. Now, big banks are safer. They are under the Fed's protection as well. And but rates have been raised fast enough to do harm to financial institutions. And, and some of these tightening effects come in a lagged way. So the Fed has to be careful about the other direction. They have to make sure that, you know, there isn't already so much tightening um, impact on a lag basis that it actually triggers a recession while they are hiking. So um, the hope here on both the Fed's part and the market's part had been that they had done enough, the fall in inflation will continue. And by the way, when, when you have a falling inflation, what you're really doing is raising the real rates in the economy. So that slows the economy without the Fed having to hike much more. So those are two sides of the same coin, falling inflation or Fed hiking. And that's why multiple future hikes should make us all nervous if inflation then falls. You know, suddenly the real rate in the economy would go up a lot and the market will not like that. The market will then, you know, go down and that will add to the tightening of conditions. So there is an amplifying effect of the markets that should make us nervous here. And honestly, on balance, what the Fed did here is increase those risks a little bit. Now, um, I'd have to say that I have to end on a slightly bearish note that if inflation doesn't decline, third quarter GDP payroll employment continue to be strong, then we will get those two hikes. And I think we would all have to be much more nervous after that. Interesting. So uh, what are the biggest risks to these scenarios? Well, I just mentioned one, um, and that basically is uh, is that the Fed ends up being forced to be hawkish. Um, I would add to that that, you know, regional bank and deposit outflows from those regional banks remain a residual risk. I think that it's a lot lower than it was a couple of months ago. Um, and, you know, I think that the underlying demand uh, picture you know, if the aggregate demand remains strong, will actually ironically pose, you know, a uh, a problem for the Fed, and it's it's a major risk. 
because if aggregate demand doesn't fall, then labor markets will stay tight. Inflation may surprise to the upside again. And then now the Fed would have to choose again between hurting the financial system and curbing the inflation rise. And uh, that means that there is an outside risk here that there's more than two hikes. You know, it's, it may not be only two hikes that we that we see here in the second half. And in that case, we would have a deeper recession almost certainly. So that's the risk to the benign scenario. So uh, what are your near-term and long-term outlook for growth? Again, like uh, with whatever visibility we have for the US and other parts of the world. I'll be brief here, you know, so the growth outlook is for the US coming out of the downturn in my benign central scenario um, with a pretty high probability. And that's because the actual downturn is going to be mild. The US is looking strong right now, and therefore it wouldn't slow very much. We probably end up with unemployment not rising above four, four and a half percent, something like that. Uh, monetary policy is looking pretty effective with positive nominal rates, which is a really good sign and uh, inflation is falling. So that's the kind of the base case here. Um, the US has come out of this so far uh, pretty well. And that's why the markets are celebrating. Markets actually went up three or 4% in a, in a week when the Fed delivered a um, hawkish message. The markets are pretty good um, predictor of where the economy is going to turn out to be in the next few months. Um, but of course, markets can be wrong some percentage of the time. But, you know, on balance, uh, one has to be reasonably optimistic here about the US. But other parts of the world, not so much. Europe, for example, um, it has much slower in intrinsic growth. Uh, we have, you know, kind of high uh, inflation. And the ECB is, a, is very much a single priority central bank. It's focused entirely on inflation. And the inflation has been very stubborn. So that combination makes for a bad outlook in Europe. And we see that Germany is already in recession. The ECB just hiked 25 basis points. So I think that the ECB hiking in a context where the Fed has stopped is even worse you know, for Europe. Now, China is also in trouble and uh, they have been stimulating the economy. They just lowered another key interest rate this week and the Chinese consumer is paying down loans instead of spending. The whole reopening after COVID has gotten stalled. So I think China may need to do more in the form of stimulus and they are stimulating when the rest of the world is hiking. So they're trying to go against the tide there. And lastly, emerging markets has had tightening policy for about two years. And there are still a lot of headwinds in emerging markets, negative trade growth. We have, uh, you know, with the hiking, we have rising real rates um, and inflation has been falling faster actually in EM than policy rates. So the real rate is increasing pretty fast and that's a concern for EM. It probably means that the landing is a little less soft than we had hoped for. Surprise, a bigger surprise also came from China, apart from the US in this particular calendar year. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, and I think that that surprise actually contributed, um, you know, to the slowing that we've been seeing in the US. So that all these markets are now linked very closely together. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So, uh, with that uh, as a backdrop, like how are the investors placed? Uh, so, for instance, first, if we consider the asset allocation part, and uh, 2022 probably was like one of the worst years in history for a 60-40 portfolio. So, uh, how does it look to you now? Between bonds now, and equities? The timing? Yes. Um, it's a great question. The question about... Um, you know, asset allocation, Jolly, because that's one pic picture that has changed dramatically in the last year. Now, before 2022 and 21, for example, uh, I think it was already very clear that the 60-40 portfolio was not going to work. What wasn't clear was how that would manifest itself. In other words, would it be gradual or would it be sudden? And 2022, we found out the answer is it was going to be pretty sudden because rates went up by 5%. So you had a very uh, unusual um, asset allocation environment where both sides of your allocation, the equity side and the bond side, both did really badly. Um, but we are now looking at a completely different picture. Uh, relative to history, you know, at 4 to 5%, nominal risk-free yields are at competitive levels again. And so they're once again deserving of an allocation in a classic portfolio, 60-40 or whatever the appropriate mix is, uh, given, you know, your liabilities. And this is in sort of stark contrast to the COVID period when um, bonds offered really poor risk reward. And as far as which part of bonds one would use to allocate, I kind of like a barbell. I like both the short and intermediate dated um, you know, bonds in the nominal, uh, on the nominal curve. And I like, especially, I'd like them, uh, I'd like to add to them on spikes that come from this upcoming treasury issuance, which is going to push up the front end if it has an effect. And I'd like to barbell that with long dated inflation protected securities at the, at the, at the long end of the curve. Uh, and those offer real yields of over one and a half percent. And that's really good uh, that's a really good uh, value, I think, compared to what they used to be. So this combination, I think, will be a good offset to um, to equities. Now, why do I say that? In the last decade, the correlation between equities and bonds had been going up. So that is not good news for allocators because they really want the two to offset each other. Uh, but now with higher nominal yields, and with yields that are likely to be higher than long-term inflation, fixed income is gonna come back to its traditional role, you know, as a diversifier, because the threat of inflation is receding, uh, central banks are doing what they're supposed to do. So you will get the negative correlation between equities and debt again, and that will reestablish that pivotal role, you know, that bonds typically play in asset allocation. Now, on the other side of that, stocks are unlikely to replicate, you know, the stellar performance that the S&P in particular has had over the past decade. By the way, the global stock market has not done what the S&P has done. It has been really lopsided. Most of the gains have gone to a few U.S. tech stocks, and the rest of the market hasn't done well. Um, outside the U.S., the markets have done even worse. But I think that these are as long-term trends are unlikely to, to persist for another decade. So if people who are riding the um, tech bubble 
should be reminded about the late 90s and about the nifty 50 in the 60s because this is likely to reverse over the longer period 10 20 years and not only that even if that doesn't happen and only a few names are going to be dominant in the next decade the leadership names which names are actually dominating will rotate you know we can't predict beforehand which stocks are going to do well and our chances of picking the exact right ones is not high so i think that that's why you need the asset allocation process um, i think the fact that you you are looking at the passing of recession fears uh, you're looking at the a pretty anemic performance so far of non-us stocks and we are just starting to see a revival in small stocks and consumer discretionary so this may be setting the stage for a rally in the beaten down sectors you know whether it is um, the ones that i just mentioned or outside the us in emerging markets um, india for example looks pretty bright as a spot so i think that you're looking at um, a more diversified equity portfolio doing better over the next year or two interesting so there's also fundamentals on one hand to look out for but uh, even a bit of a liquidity picture as well at play. Yeah, so I do think that, um, you know, the liquidity picture, as well as the fundamental picture, um, are looking okay to me. You know, as my friend Krishna Mimani says, the economy and the market seem to have dodged two bullets, you know, so one, of course, was the debt ceiling, nobody even remembers that even though it was only a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but I was never overly concerned about the debt ceiling and the markets also didn't seem to care too much. So that was appropriate. But on the other hand, I think that this uh, issue with the solvency of the regional and small bank system, that's a bullet that we feel we've dodged because we took care of it, or rather the regulators took care of it. Um, I think that they did a good job. Uh, we have spoken about the residual risks there. So I do think those are two issues. Um, in terms of stocks, um, you know, dealing with uh, both the liquidity as well as the fundamentals, they're doing rather well. So in the first quarter of 23, you know, we had uh, beats of expectations, earnings expectations, more than three quarters of the names. And um, both uh, sales and earnings were better than expectations. So the equity market is echoing the uh, economic data and delivering healthier growth than what analysts had priced in. And the Fed, if they know what they're doing, wouldn't want to upset this apple cart. They want to try not to upset the apple cart, but bring down inflation, and that's their dilemma. And now the bullish case for stocks is reinforced when you look at the lopsided performance. I mentioned to you, there are a lot of stocks, um, the majority of stocks, that actually are still nearer their lows, although they're starting to get better. So I think the reason for that is just the fear of recession that is lurking in the back of everybody's minds. And that has hurt everything except the top end of the equity market. So this, this is actually in contrast to early cycle, typical early cycle market. So we're not yet pricing in a full bull cycle here which is uh, Jurian Timmer from uh, Fidelity points out, are usually led by small caps. So it's when the world is fearful that 
investors find good opportunities. So that's why I like risky assets in the US outside of those high flyers. Um, and although, you know, we must expect a lot of volatility in the second half because, you know, we, we do have these two hikes priced in. If the market had priced in those hikes after the Fed, uh, you know, came out and talked about them, I would be feeling, you know, a little more comfortable. The fact that the market has not priced it in means that there will be some Fed and inflation scares here for the rest of 23. So there are risks and um, that risk is going to create volatility in the US market. But I don't think that's sufficient reason to stay away from stocks, which except for a few stocks look reasonable to me. So there are a lot of factors to watch out for, but it isn't as bad as of now. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Rajan, for your generous replies and sharing insights on many aspects of the U.S. economy as well as the financial markets. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I look forward to having it soon again with you. Well, it's been a pleasure, Jolly. Uh, thank you for uh, inviting me and uh, it was a great opportunity to talk to your audience. I look forward to, to future occasions like this. Thank you everyone for listening. Do tune in to our next episode. Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe. Share your feedback by sending a DM on social media. Stay tuned for the next episode.